All right, so we are in the midst of a three-week series, and it's a review of our values. It's a values refresh. We usually do this um, about every year or so, and so we have three values. Um, Everybody that calls Bethel home, you know them right off the top of your head, right? Three values. Gospel, community, and mission. Okay, so this time, as we walk through it, we're going to do it in the book of Romans with each of these three messages. So last week, we looked at the centrality of the gospel and saw several key passages in Romans 1 to 5. Um, We saw that the gospel is the power of God to save, and it's also the power of God to strengthen and to build up his church. So it's not just what brings us into the kingdom, it's also what grows us into Christ-likeness as well. So the gospel is good news that even though we are sinners, that we've fallen short like Brian mentioned earlier, that we deserve the condemnation, the wrath of God for our sin, God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. And if we turn from our sin, we repent and we trust in Jesus, we are justified. We are pardoned and made righteous in God's sight. We're declared righteous in his sight. We are reconciled to God by his grace. And that is forevermore. Nothing can separate us from his love. So it is super good news and it changes everything. It should change everything. So the gospel's powerful and it changes us in two directions mainly as we think about the values. The gospel animates and activates us in two different directions. It propels us, it moves us further up and further in. We want to know God better. We love God. We've got a new heart when his grace comes home to our, to our hearts, it changes us from the inside out and we love God. We want to love him with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. So we want to go further up and further in. But also it leads us to unity and harmony and to love one another. So the gospel changes us. We want to get to know God better and we want to love one another better as well. And then it propels us out to minister to others, to meet needs, to love other people, whether they be believers or not believers, even our enemies, as we'll see in Romans chapter 12. Um, The gospel propels us and empowers us even to love our enemies. Okay? So that's... Um, kind of big picture here. And so what we see is that the truth of the gospel or gospel theology creates or shapes church sociology. You could say it that way. So you could also say good gospel creed should be embodied in grace-filled gospel community. Okay, so there's a connection there. It's not just here's one, here's another, here's the third. They all are connected and we need to see how they're connected. The power of the gospel creates this kind of community that we are going to read about and study in Romans chapter 12. So Romans 12 is a big chapter, right? There's a lot in there, a lot of commands, a lot of bullet points. We can't overturn every rock. We're not going to hit on all of it. We're going to get the big picture mainly. So here's where we're headed. 
five points in the outline um, that will be up on the screen um, or you can pull it up from the website from the live stream page as well if you want to do that or there's hard copies in the library if you er, library the lobby starts with an L I was close um, if you want to run out and grab one that's fine too um, so five points the first two are found in verse 1 and 2 respectively and they're kind of like headings over the whole chapter okay so we're gonna hit those two points first and then for verses 3 to 21 we're gonna kind of you know get the telephoto lens on a little bit more or you could say bird's eye view forest view and then we're gonna walk among the trees and the way that we're gonna walk among those trees is under two headings have I lost you yet um, two headings humility and love okay so again not everything fits neatly under these two headings but if we get a big picture we can't overturn every rock we're gonna see that so much of what's going on in this chapter fits under humility Christ-like humility and Christ-like love so that's how we're gonna walk through the chapter here this morning so ready first point um, verse 1 sacrifice arrow mercy arrow sacrifice what does that mean well look at verse 1 Paul writes I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship so on the basis of the mercies of God which he's just spent chapters describing and unpacking and those mercies are rich they are deep and they are wide on the basis of all of that Paul makes his appeal to the church in Rome and then ultimately to us here as well so Paul does not say I urge you brothers and sisters to get busy with all these Christian imperatives and if you do a good enough job you know maybe God will be merciful to you he didn't even write okay enough about all of what God has done now we need to get on to what you guys should do he doesn't say it that way either Christianity is not get your life together by obeying these imperatives and then God will respond by giving you you know some love and mercy Christianity is get your eyes on the mercy on the mercies do you see what he's done for you in Christ look at all he's done and then as a reflex in view of all of that empowered by all of that here's how to live okay so we need eyes of faith to see the mercies of God and then we will be empowered to obey from faith by the mercies of God all right so it's Jesus's sacrifice that provides all this mercy for us and when we receive that mercy then we give ourselves as a living sacrifice a willing sacrifice you see Jesus's sacrifice provides mercy for us and empowered by that mercy then we give our lives offer our lives as a living sacrifice so we can offer our lives because he first offered his we are living sacrifices because of the sacrifice of Christ okay so think about it this way back in chapter 6 um, if you're familiar with the book of Romans Paul exhorts believers in Rome to offer their members their bodies to God as instruments of righteousness so those eyes of yours 
Those are God's eyes. They belong to him. So offer them to him in worship, right? Those hands of yours, those feet. So all of who we are belongs to God. If we belong to God, then all of us belongs to God. All of who we are, our ears, our hands, our feet, everything, holy, devoted to God. So let's present them regularly to him for his use, for his glory and the good of others. So that's what he's talking about here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, okay? And it's all of life is worship, not just what we do here on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, but all of life is worship. You can do the internet in a way that is either being conformed to this world or worshiping God. You can do work in a way that just is shaped and formed by the world, you know, cutthroat and stepping on people to get places, or you can worship God in and through your work, empowered by his mercy, right? So all of who we are offered up to God as worship. So living sacrifice, that's kind of a weird picture. We need to get on the altar and die? Like who wants to do that? Who wants to yield themselves and give themselves like this? I mean, what keeps you on the altar? Don't you want to just wiggle off and go do what you want to do? Don't you find yourself doing that regularly? Like God calls us to do that. It's uncomfortable. And I want to just wiggle out from under that and go do my own thing. What, what gets us on the altar? What keeps us on the altar? The mercies. The mercy keeps us on the altar. So again, we need to keep those mercies in view only when we see how gracious and kind God has been to us. Then our sacrifice is nothing in comparison to his sacrifice. This is the only way to live. So it's like this gospel reflex. It's the reflex to God's grace and goodness and kindness and mercy toward us. So first point is Jesus' sacrifice. Big picture, Romans 1 to 11. Gives us all this mercy and by the power of that mercy we offer ourselves as living sacrifice. But the kind of community, the kind of life that Romans 12 talks about is not going to come automatically, right? We, we want to we wiggle off the altar oftentimes. The gospel isn't the only powerful influence in our lives on a daily basis. Look at point number two, the formation machine in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the mercy of God is a powerful influence. The gospel is powerful to influence and shape us, but also the world is working to squeeze us into its mold. It's an active force, okay? What is the world? It's, it's the flesh writ large. <laughs> What's the flesh? Like the Bible talks about the flesh. Well, it's our fallen nature, right? It's us saying we will be in charge of our own lives. Thank you very much. It's our selfishness. It's our pride. 
It's us in our fallenness. And when you get a bunch of people together with the same heart, that same kind of selfishness and pride, you get the world. It's the flesh writ large. And when you get a bunch of people together with those kinds of values, it creates a current that oftentimes is difficult to go upstream against, right? So just think about how natural this is. This is the flesh, and then think about the, the dynamics when it gets writ large. We meet one another. Let's say you go somewhere, you go to a, a work event, or even a, a church event or a community group for the first time or something like that. What happens when you walk into a room? How natural is it to just size up the room? To kind of size people up and what do we do? We, we kind of like peg people and, you know, is this person going to be a threat to my standing or my security? And sometimes it's not conscious, but we do this kind of stuff. Deep down, we want to make sure we're okay. And oftentimes it's in relation to other people and we want to push them down. I mean, it's just like junior high, a little bit more sophisticated. Put you down so I can feel a little bit better about myself and know who I am and have some security. And this person threatens that. And so what do I do? I start nitpicking and getting judgmental and critical against them so I can knock them down a couple rungs and feel a little bit better about myself. That is as natural as breathing for us, sadly. That's the flesh. And what happens when you get like millions and millions of people doing that? Well, you get Twitter. So why do we have cancel culture? It's, it's, it's the world. It's the current of our spring-loaded judgmentalism and lack of graciousness and Pharisee-like self-righteousness writ large. That's just one example of the world and how it seeks to squeeze you into its mold. David Wells um, used to teach systematic theology up at... Uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary in Boston and he has a book called God in the Wasteland and he describes, defines world and worldliness in a really helpful way. He says this, this world then is the way in which our collective life and society and the culture that goes with it is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion with a corresponding distaste for the self-denial, getting on the altar, proper to union with Christ. <clears throat> so Wells says that worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations in any given culture that have at their center the fallen human being and that relegate to their periphery any thought of God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. So no wonder the Apostle John writes, don't love the world, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, or the things in the world. That doesn't mean don't love strawberries or don't love pineapples or don't love, you know, Longwood Gardens or something like that. It's don't love the fallenness and the dynamics of fallenness in this world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of that's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world in that sense is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we have to guard against being confused 
conformed to the world. The world is a formation machine. It's the air we breathe, right? Every day from the moment you wake up in the morning, your attention is wanted. You head into your day, you head, you, it's like enter the formation machine. You know, cue the ominous music. Or perhaps we should say the deformation machine. Advertising, social media, different news outlets are catechizing you. They're seeking to own and shape your mind and your heart and your values. The news cycle is sensationalized. Advertising is sexualized. Why? This is the current of the world. And it's all aimed at molding and shaping you into its image. So why is it, for instance, in study after study, that the results are clear? Maybe you saw this in the news back in like September that Instagram, for instance, has a negative impact on body image for young women and plenty of others, not just young women. So there was a Forbes article, um, Wall Street Journal article. I'll just read a couple little snippets from it. In September, a Facebook whistleblower revealed research to the Wall Street Journal suggesting that Instagram used negatively that Instagram use, sorry, negatively impacted teen girls' body image. Researchers have been studying the effects of social media on adolescent girls for years and have long had a clear understanding of its negative impact, eating disorder risk increase, depression, appearance anxiety, body dissatisfaction links, linkages, increased desire for cosmetic surgery, addictive response triggers by likes, you know, the likes kind of dopamine hit, drive for thinness increased, increased exposure and engagement in self-harm and suicidal thoughts. Another article, same time, a 17-year-old girl in a high school um, in California said she estimates half the girls in her grade struggle with body image concerns tied to Instagram. Every time I feel good about myself, I go over to Instagram, and then it all goes away, she said. When her classmate, 17, arrived at high school, she found her peers using Instagram as a tool to measure their relative popularity. Students referred to the number of followers their peers had as if the number was stamped on their foreheads. Identity. So I'm not just trying to, you know, pick on Instagram. That's just one example. It could be used for good. It could be redeemed. But you can see the kind of current when the value system of the world is shaping this media platform. It has a real influencing, kind of molding, shaping, conforming influence. The world is a formation machine. So what is it that's winning in our lives? What's forming us? What's shaping us? It's not just the teens, right? I mean, what's happening in the political and the, the civil discourse arenas in recent years? Hyperpolarization, tribalism dynamics everywhere. And here's how it typically goes. When we're talking about my side, amplify how good we are, minimize how bad they are. Actually, let me say it this way. When we're talking about my tribe, it's maximize how good we are, minimize how bad we are. <laughs> Not very honest about our own shortfalls. And then when it comes to the other, amplify how bad they are, minimize how good they are. And then vice versa, right? Those are worldly 
dynamics. So listen, formation happens in community, even if it's virtual or online community, and it happens for good or for ill. And when the world is shaping, you know, selfishness and pride just tear relationships apart, but the mercies of God create humility, security, love, the opposite of what the world creates and produces. So the church is to be a counter-cultural community that is formed and shaped by the word, by the gospel, by the mercies of God, transformed by the mercies and grace of God. (coughs) So a church that's empowered by the gospel should be a countercultural community and a formation machine. <laughs> the church should be a formation machine for Christ likeness. So we are going to be catechized and formed. It's just a matter of by whom. So is it going to be the world or is it going to be the word? Let's pray that it will be the word. Let's work that it would be the word here when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, like Paul writes here, then the word becomes the formation machine. The church becomes the formation machine. So just a quick little application aside here. Are you bathing your mind in the Bible? (laughs) Listen, I love you. I'm gonna step on your toes. You're not too busy. None of you are starving because you're too busy. You find time to eat, even like on the craziest days. So, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're just not hungry enough, or we're hungry for the wrong things. So where in the world are you going to go to have your mind renewed and transformed? That word for transformation is the word in Greek that we get metamorphosis, you know, like a butterfly, caterpillar to butterfly metamorphosis. So what if you and I, what if we ate the word like a monarch caterpillar? Do you call it a monarch caterpillar? A caterpillar that becomes, I don't know, whatever. Have you ever seen one of those eat milkweed? Like how about that kid's book, you know, where there's like a hole through it, a bunch of holes. He ate everything. Like what if we ate the word like that? So let's pray and let's pursue. Let's pray for each other. Let's encourage each other to pursue God's word. Not just Bible checking or, or, you know, checking off the boxes, you know, to be little good Pharisees and, you know, are you still up with your Bible reading program? Like, no, this is, we're desperate for the mercies of God and we need to feed on the word so that we have resources to love like this. Because we don't want to, we know the world's going to try to squeeze and push and it's, it's preaching at us all the time, morning till night. So if we don't counter it and feed actively, intentionally, we will be formed, but we're going to be formed by the wrong things. So when we have eyes on the mercies, fixated on the sacrifice of Christ and all the mercy that flows from Calvary, manifold mercies, riches of mercies, then we will offer ourselves willingly, wholeheartedly, all of life as worship 
seeking to even learn what does it mean for all of life to be worship? How do I live my work life as worship? You know, because when you're not conformed to this world and your mind is being transformed, you can discern what is the will of God in this or that area of life, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see? Like, this is actually key. Living sacrifice, not conformed, is, ha- is part of how you know God's will in this or that or the other category of life how to spend our days, how to cultivate this kind of community um, that God calls us to. So let's look at how this community is described under two headings, right? Humility and love. So first, humility, beginning in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think, remember, renewed mind, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not have, all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So the world wants you to be ruled by the flesh, the world, the devil, wants you to be ruled by pride. The mercies of God in Christ say, don't think too highly of yourself. (laughs) See, opposite messages forming us in two different ways. This is part of the transformation that happens by the renewal of our minds. We have the mind of Christ. We need to have the mind of Christ and live from it. His humility rather than worldly pride. So walk into a room and rather than sizing up other people, what if instead, instead of judgmentalism and you know, critical spirit and gossipy this and whatever, and you know what happens sometimes in the church? Um, think about this. How, how often have you said of, of one person or another, so-and-so is blank, but <laughs> it's like, here, let me give you this token positive thing about them, but then I'm going to just say, but, and really that's the, where the weight is in my assessment. So-and-so is really nice, but <laughs> like, if that's the way that we speak about one another, it's not going to create this kind of community, right? So if we walk into a room, the mercies will start to shape us in such a way that we say, God, who can I minister to in this room? What needs could I potentially meet? Who can I, who should I love? Or if someone, you start to engage with someone, maybe what can I learn from this person? Humbly, rather than, I already know that. Don't you try to remind me. I'm gonna one-up you. Or, where do I see the mercy of God evident in this person's life? How can I actually point it out in a meaningful and sincere way to encourage them? Like, what if that was our posture? Anybody want to be a part of that church? Chris does. Is there anybody else that wants to be a part of that church? Okay, (laughs) cool. Well, then, let's be a part of that church by cultivating that kind of church and and many of you are and do and so this humility extends to the use of our gifts right I mean look he flows 
right off of this, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Listen, we're not lone rangers. We can't do this on our own. We're members in one body. Not all the members have the same function. We need each other. We're individually members one of another. So you've got gifts. Don't disengage out of pride. Don't think yourself, you know, too high or too important for all of this. I don't have time. Not a good use of my time. Waste of my time. No, the renewed mind doesn't take gifts and just use them for selfish gain, but gives gifts for the good of others. So verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, everything we have is a gift. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So these gifts were given for a purpose to build up the body, proactive engagement. No one on the sidelines. Can there be a DL? Okay, those of you that know sports, disabled list. Yes, sometimes people are suffering and they need the body to come around them. They can be on the DL for a little while. But other than that, no armchair critics. Thank you very much. The lazy boys can go in the trash no passive consumers. It's all of us using our gifts. We're all needed. Every gift is needed. Every member of the body matters and is important. So we humbly use our gifts for the good of the body. One more command that we'll pick up here that falls under the heading of humility. Look down at verse 16. It could also fall under love, but, but it certainly falls under hum humility. Um, and this will kind of be a segue to point number four. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. So you see it? Pride, conformity of the world, world squeezing you into its mold. Pride separates, stratifies, divides. Humility unifies illustrations. Two, real quickly, heard Tim Keller um, tell these stories, and I think they illustrate the point helpfully. So if the gospel is our center of gravity, it humbles us and helps us with unity. So Martin Lloyd-Jones is a preacher in, in London, you know, last century. Um, in the 20s, he was a physician. He actually started out as a physician. Um, he was like top of his med school, med school class. He was, you know, widely believed to be like one of the most brilliant med students that had come across anyone's radar in anyone's memory. So he graduated, got through residency. Immediately, he snatched up, becomes physician to the royal family, um, like top medical position in the country, and in a very class-stratified society in England at the time, he was at the top and then he got converted. So he eventually left medical school. He became a, or not medical school, medical field, sorry, and became a preacher, went to this small town on the coast of Wales. It was a poor town filled with fishermen, most of them illiterate. He took this small mission church there and he started visiting people. And he found this bond with these people and a joy with these people and closeness. And he's even learning from them and you know, it just kind of went against all of his upbringing and his training. Because the way that he was trained, the way that he was brought up by the world, made him think that those people were below him. 
And in a sense, he even said it, I think, in one of his messages. He said one of the ways that he knew that Jesus had really changed him is because he didn't view himself as superior to these folks anymore. They weren't below him anymore. He had this oneness with people of different classes, people that if he weren't a Christian, he never would have given them the time of day or had any sense of unity with them at all. And then Keller told a story of a Bosnian that he once met in New York City. Not a Christian, but you'll see why I mention this story in a minute. So this guy had been in America for quite a while. It happened to be an election year, and he said, this is, again, probably years ago, but the Bosnian said, you know the Democrats really hate the Republicans here in America. And he said, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I'll tell you this, if I meet a Bosnian who is a Republican, politics don't matter. And Keller said, well, why? What? Because we're one. Because we've both been through life and death together. We've been through the same experiences. So reason I say that is to say, you know, we've got such polarized, you know, world on so many different issues. Maybe some of those issues are a little too big and a little too central. And maybe Jesus is not quite central enough. So I'm not saying politics don't matter, but if you've been through life and death, like as in you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were made alive together with Christ, that is at the center. And if you meet somebody else who has the same, who has the same miracle that's been wrought in their lives, it doesn't matter what you guys believe about masking or this or that. Like, we are one. So... Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. So again, the opposite of the world formation machine, the gospel formation machine. It makes us humble, this Christ-like humility. Then love, point number four. Do you notice how many times love comes up in this chapter? Both toward believers and even toward enemies. Let love be genuine. Verse 9. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How about that for competition? I mean, it's really easy, isn't it, to just kind of tap out, you know, like, man, I'm just, I got nothing. When it comes to meeting needs and serving people and loving people, Sometimes, and you know, sometimes we need a break and we need to say no. We can't say yes to everything. We're not God and, you know, we've got limits and all of that. But oftentimes we're selfishly trying to save our lives and get off that altar. Because we're low on mercy. The more we're filled up with the mercy, the more we're going to be enabled to love like this. Loving genuinely, not smiling. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I love you. And then... Not really. It's about this deep. Love one another with brotherly affection. Don't we need God's mercy, his supernatural help to be able to love like this? It's also how we have resources to give, contribute to the needs of the saints. Verse 13, seek to show hospitality. How do you be hospitable as a Christian? It's by knowing how God has been hospitable to you. Think about how he's welcomed you. He's the ultimate host. Makes a table 
before us in the presence of our enemies. My cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. God has been so generous to us. He's been so hospitable to us. We don't deserve his hospitality, but he's given it to us graciously. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Illustration from Johnny Erickson Tata, but maybe I'll... Oh, I'll skip some other things. You've got to hear this, this thing, okay? So this is gospel community. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So she had a diving accident probably like 60 years ago, left her as a quadriplegic, and in the hospital, while she's trying to absorb the fact that she's going to be a quadriplegic, there were some Christians that came in and, you know, kind of threw Romans 8.28 at her in a insensitive way, or James 1, you know, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Welcome this trial as a friend. That did not help. So she said this, you know, what kind of things, like what kind of posture, how should you relate to Christians who are suffering like this? She said, when I was a little girl, I remember riding my bike down a steep hill. I made a right-hand turn, my wheels skidded out on gravel, and I crashed to the ground. My knee was a bloody mess. My dad comes running out. I'm screaming and crying. Although I didn't ask why, if I had, how cruel it would have been for my father to stand over me and say, like if she would have asked, why did this happen? Um, how cruel would it have been for him to stand over me and say, well, sweetheart, let me answer that question. The next time you're going down the hill, watch the steepness. Be careful about the trajectory of your turn. Be observant of gravel. Those would have all been good answers to the question, why did this happen? But when people are going through great trauma and great grief, they don't want to know why. They want daddy to pick them up, press them against his chest, pat them on the back and say, there, there, sweetheart, daddy's here. It's okay. When we are hurting, that's what we want. We want God to be daddy, warm, compassionate, real in the middle of our suffering. We want fatherly assurance that our world is not spinning out of control. So then she says, here's one thing that did help in the hospital. One night, my high school friend, Jackie, with whom I shared boyfriends, Okay. Uh, milkshakes and hockey sticks came into the hospital late one night, like two in the morning, past visiting hours. The nurses were on break. No one was in the hallway. She crept up the steps of the hospital, snuck in the back way, came into my six-bed ward. I was with five other spinal cord injured girls who were all asleep. My friend came sneaking into the room, crawling on her hands and knees. She came over to my bed, stood up slowly, lowered the guardrail of the hospital bed, just like high schoolers will do on pajama sleepovers. She climbed into bed next to me, snuggled real close, and softly began to sing, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. She gets choked up thinking about it, 45 or by now it's longer, years later. She gave me something that night that was priceless. She helped me encounter Jesus Christ in a warm and personal way. That's how precious the body of Christ is to healing the hearts of those who are hurting, to come up close to them, to infuse into their spiritual veins life, hope, healing, health. That's what Jackie gave me that night. She gave me Jesus in a real and personal way. That's really what I needed. And then she says this, don't you dare be caught rejoicing with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. So love toward saints, but also love toward enemies. I'm just going to read these verses. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. It's shame. It's a metaphor for shame. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So is this not the opposite of being conformed to this world? Do you see how we need supernatural mercies to live this out? This is the kind of place that only mercy can make. So like, read this chapter. Can you believe all this? (laughs) Can you believe all this? Like, we're supposed to live this out? What a place this would be. Like, what a people this would be. Where in the world does this come from? It doesn't come from the world. It comes from the ultimate sacrifice. It comes from megatons of mercy, blood-bought. It comes from the gospel taking root in individual hearts and then those hearts being gathered together and being conformed and transformed by the grace of the gospel. So the onus is on us. There's ownership on us to keep our eyes on the mercies and to live this out here so that we are the transformed community. So there's lots of practical ways we do this. Hey, get, a, get plugged into a community group. You know, don't be a, a lone ranger. Like, get connected, get to know people, be known, all of that. But this is the transformed community. And we all have a part to play in actually cultivating those dynamics here. So let's all be on board prayerfully. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna go right into some community sharing. So if, you, if you're new here, um, we do this every once in a while. We just kind of open mic and give opportunity for people to share, give testimony. So there could be opportunity to say, you know what? The Lord has done this here. I've been, I've been shaped and transformed in a good way by means of this church through so-and-so, his ministry, her ministry, or whatever. You want to give testimony to that. That's not, you know, glorifying a person. It's giving God the glory for his grace worked out through a person, and that stirs us all up to love and good deeds. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take some, a few minutes to share. Oh God, we need your supernatural grace to live this out. I pray that we would, if there's any sense of just being overwhelmed with how far short we fall of this standard, that we would take that right to you and receive more mercy and be encouraged and even excited about what you can produce in us and individually and in us corporately by your mighty mercy. So do it, Lord, for the sake of your great name, the good of this people, the good of those who will be a part of us in the future, and the good of our city. In Jesus' name, amen.